I'd like for you to turn to the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke on this uh, Palm Sunday, a sermon from the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Verse 14, did I tell you the verse? It does help to have the verse. Verse 14. Now we're to 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the, la the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them would be regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you'll sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers and he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you will have denied me three times, denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along, 
Likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look here, two swords. And he said to them with a sigh, it is enough. The church, at least organized religion, has been racked with scandal late. And so Jimmy Swaggart preaches against immorality while at the same time engages in it. And Jim Baker urges everybody to a life of sacrifice while living in extravagance and luxury. And a well-known Roman Catholic bishop resigns in humiliation his position, having betrayed his vow of celibacy. And three women get on the most popular television show on the networks to describe their escapades with him. And a Roman Catholic priest in Minnesota is found guilty of the molestation of little boys. And a prominent Methodist pastor is on trial for the attempted murder of his wife. And a Southern Baptist minister in Dallas, pastor of one of the largest Baptist churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, resigns in shame, admitting an extramarital affair, and now makes Dallas Life magazine as one of the jets set in Dallas, visiting the so-called in discos, trying to pick up young women. The church, at least organized religion, has been racked with scandal of late, so many say that the church itself needs to be saved and perhaps there is no place that needs revival more than in the church. The tragedy of all of this is that this is nothing new. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a church that was notorious for its excesses and its divisiveness and even had a prominent member committing incest. And John wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor recorded in the book of Revelation and he wrote about problems within the church ranging all the way from indifference to out-and-out -out paganism. But perhaps the greatest scandal of all was, a, was committed or was in a place you would least likely expect it, in the upper room. You'd probably think that here in this sacred place, the upper room, Jesus would find release from heartache. You'd think, wouldn't you, that here in the circle of these friends, Jesus would find encouragement and strength and release from sorrow. How wrong you would be. For there, one of the greatest scandals of all occurs. They met in the upper room to celebrate the feast of the Passover the most sacred of all Jewish feasts, the one that commemorated their escape from Egyptian bondage. Ignatius of Loyola 
encourages us to interpret Scripture by living the Scripture itself. He says that we are to enter into it as though we were there, to present yourself to the gospel with your imagination so that you can see and hear and taste and touch and smell all that's going on as though it were happening to you. In your imagination this morning, I want you to present yourself to this story like that. And so as we enter that little room upstairs, we're going to pass by this large container of water that's always placed in every home so that honored guests could have their weary feet washed. Our feet are dirty and we're weary, but no one is there to wash our feet. No one will. And we see this group of men reclining around this little table. It's no more than two feet high totally different than da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper. They didn't sit upright around a table as we do. They reclined around a little table and on their left side they reclined. And on the right of Jesus is John. In fact, he's leaning over on Jesus' breast and on his left is Judas Iscariot. As we look around the room, we can tell the one who is Simon Peter, he's the big man at the end of the group. And you just sense, you have a gut feeling that something wrong is there, something bad wrong. For on the face of Jesus is this look of sorrow, not of worry or anxiety or fear, but the deepest sadness you could ever see. And everybody is speaking in hushed tones and their eyes are riveted on that man in the center of the group. You would think that here, wouldn't you? He'd find comfort from that suffering and sorrow that's just hours away, not at all. For here one of the greatest scandals of all occurs, the scandal of the upper room. It's a scandal of the blindness of one to great moments. Holman Hunt has painted a beautiful picture it hangs in art galleries around the world. It's obviously late in the afternoon. The sun has just tipped over the horizon and the light is the afterglow. And the young Nazarene carpenter is sitting at a bench. He's worked there all day and he rises to close up shop and he's stiff from having worked at the bench all day. And so as he rises, he stretches a little bit and the Light from that dying sun seeps through the doorway and makes a silhouette of a cross on the wall behind him. It's the dramatic way the artist is reminding us that the cross has always been there. It was there when he stepped out of the wilderness, having resisted the enticement of it, and it stared him in the face there, and its shadows deepened at Caesarea Philippi, but the disciples missed it. And the opposition began to mushroom. The Pharisees hated him because of their closed minds and he challenged their narrow thinking. And nothing so frightens a closed mind as a great thought. And the Jewish council could not stand it that he talked about loving everybody. And the crowds resented the, the demands he was thrusting upon their lives. And so those shadows began to deepen and it rained on Jesus. But that cross had always been there. They just missed it. 
Not only was this dynamic moment that's occurring in the upper room, the fact that just outside the door is His cross, but what they missed was the greatness of what was happening there, His moment of redemption. And so Jesus said it like this, He said, with desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. It'll be the last one we eat. He was saying, in essence, I've lived for this moment. This is why I've come to this earth. And he spoke of this redemption he was about to accomplish just hours away. And he was saying, this is why I'm here. This is why I was born. This is why I've lived for this moment. Oh, what a moment. And you know what he did there? He took the bread and he said this symbolizes the brokenness of the cross and he instituted the new Passover. And he looked into that cup, there was the red wine symbolizing his blood and he instituted that celebration that would be celebrated for all time by thousands of Christians of every kind from generation to generation. What a moment! And they missed it. You understand what he did? He was instituting this event that would be celebrated in the amphitheaters as they waited for the lions to devour them. And before they stormed the beaches of Normandy, my brother was in that group. They got together with their priests and their ministers and they celebrated it again. And on the beaches of Dunkirk as they waited for the Germans to attack And in these little white country churches surrounded by the aroma of new mown hay and in the great cathedrals of the world in all their stately glory, thousands and thousands of people have gathered together to take his body and drink his blood instituted that night and they missed it. You'd think that these men of all men would understand what his death meant. You'd think that these men, of all men, would understand what was going on. That was the scandal of the upper room. It's the scandal of the modern church. Not just that we have never really fully understood his death. Not just that we handle things carelessly in our prayers and praise and in our sermon. But hear me now, because the greatness of this moment has never really gripped any of us what Jesus did. I heard J. Wallace Hamilton tell about the ecumenical service he attended. The moderator of this service was a priest in the Orthodox Church. He had on a long black robe. He had deep chest, chin whisker. Went all the way to his stomach. A big, rotund man. You can see him in your mind. He was sitting up on one of the pulpit chairs and a man was up there preaching And he was bringing a lesson, a a lecture, a, a sermon on the death of Jesus. He said around that great man's neck hanging on a huge gold chain was a big old cross, gold cross about that big. He said while that man was up there talking about what God had done in Jesus, he said that man was cleaning his fingernails with the corner of that cross. We've never caught it, have we? And so we come into this service and we sing the songs without a sob and we go through the motions missing the whole thing. Is that a scandal or what? Is that we celebrate what God has done for us and we miss it? 
because we're blind of the great moment. The scandal of the upper room is not just that. It's, it's ignorance of the spiritual. That's why they missed it. Because all they could think about was the physical kingdom. And these Jews, these men were anticipating that when Messiah came, he would establish a physical kingdom. They never got beyond that. And while Jesus was preaching and teaching, they were thinking, man, this man is, this is the one. He's going to come and establish a kingdom just like David's and restore the glory of Israel. And they were so earthbound, they missed the spiritual. And Jesus said, you know, gentlemen, I told you to take a bag of sandals and a script. He said, now I'm taking, telling you to take a, a, a bag and a, and a, and a sword and these men, thinking that Jesus was talking about being armed for physical warfare, said, look, Lord, we have two swords already. Perhaps they reached up there and on the wall of many of those homes they had swords, and they took them off the wall, or maybe they just picked up a couple of butcher knives off of the table that were there to slice the bread. They said, Lord, look, we've got two swords. Thinking of being armed for the physical battle, Jesus talking about spiritual warfare. No wonder he said with a sigh at the end, it's enough. No use talking anymore. You just never have gotten it yet, have you? I'm speaking this morning to earthbound people. We're so materialistic. Our eyes are on things and physical disclosures. We measure life by the bottom line. We talk about a person's net worth and we're talking about his finances. We even measure the success of a church by the number of people who come to it and by the amount of money in its budget. We're so earthbound. And Jesus said to these men, Don't you get it? Are you so blind that you cannot see it? Don't waste your life on things physical. Don't spend this precious life just on earthly things? Are you so blind that you cannot see that the most important things in life are spiritual? They were earthbound, ignorant of the spiritual. The scandal of the upper room is that there was a betrayer in their midst. Hear me now. I want you to imagine yourself in this room it's dark, not a light on in the house. And there's a young man sitting at a table. It's half set. And he's slumped over, obviously in, in anguish. He has one hand over his head, his eyes. The other hand holds a crumpled piece of paper which reads, I don't love you anymore. I found somebody else. I'm gone. Don't look for me. Betrayed. And I want you to come back to me with me to that upper room. There in that room of a baker's dozen of men, there sits a man in the center, reclines in the center, and he says, there's somebody who's going to betray me who is so near his hand touches me. Could it be? This, the betrayer is so close that his hand is with mine in the dip. Could it be? That's always amazed me. Does it not amaze you? 
that the betrayer of Jesus was one of them? Charles Lamb was asked, who of all men of history would you most like to meet? Let me ask you that. Of all people of history, excluding Jesus, which man would you most like to meet? Abraham Lincoln? Christopher Columbus? Gerald? No. (laughs) All men of history, which would you most like to meet? Charles Lamb said with a, with, a, with a flash, he said, I'd like to meet Judas Iscariot. I'd like to meet the man who could look Jesus in the face and yet betray him. Could it be that in this upper room, in the midst of Jesus, is a betrayer? You bet your life. For in the circle of his friends, he's most often betrayed. What about the people who have made commitments to Jesus Christ? I'll go with you in sickness and in in health, in joy and in sorrow, in prosperity as well as in adversity, who who are not walking with Him any longer. What about those people? What about the people who make up the circle of Jesus, who have made a commitment to follow Him to the death and have yet to fulfill their promise? Betrayed. And so somebody gave a New Testament to a Jew and he was so enamored by the writings of that New Testament he read it all one night. He saw him the next morning and said, Sir, what did you think of this, the New Testament? He said, It's the most wonderful book I have ever read. But tell me, sir, what do the Christians have in common with this book? Betrayed. The scandal of the upper room is the scandal of a struggle for place. I don't know whether you noticed or not, but he said there arose a dispute among them. That's an interesting word. It means love of quarreling. And the idea here is not that that this is something new. It's not that this just started. He's saying uh, they love to quarrel and it's been going on now for months. This quarreling, this disputing had been going on for months. And while Jesus was living his life of love among them, they were bickering and biting each other in the back. And they were quarreling about who would be the greatest. Wouldn't you think that the presence of Jesus would dispel all selfishness? Not so in that group's selfishness. The scent of selfishness was reeking. You could cut it with a knife. Instead of saying to Jesus, am I being great in what I meant to be? They were comparing themselves to one another, afraid that somebody else is going to get ahead of them in life. It remains the scandal of the church. Who is there among us who would say to Jesus, Lord, how can I be a servant of all? Who is there among us who would say to Jesus, I want to be the greatest in what I was meant to be. Maybe that explains why we have so many questions about why God doesn't do more for us, do more for us. Well, it's because our bodies and our welfare are not His chief concern. We're here to serve Him. One last thought, please. The scandal of the upper room is the scandal of weakness among the strongest. I have a picture in my mind of what Simon was like, Simon Peter. 
I picture him as a big burly man. I have had some artist conceptions of him hanging in my offices before of these big rough ruddy men, muscles on top of muscles. I don't think there's any question about the fact that Simon Peter was considered the leader of the leader of the group. I don't think there's any question about the fact that this man was a man's man. Strong. Strongest of the strong. Weakest. Weakest. Are you listening to me here at the end? You would think that of all the people of the earth, the people who have the power would be the people of God. You'd think of, that all, of all the people of the earth, the people who are victorious and triumphant, who could stand above tragedy, who could live in the midst of sin and not sin, of all the people of the earth who would have influence and impact, it would be the people of God, the weakest. And we all understand how unpopularity frightens us. And we all understand how to be rejected by our peers scares us to death. And we all understand how circumstances are so foreboding, we worry. We all understand it. That's the scandal. And even though these men could boast in moments of great, in moments of peace, and smite their chest and boast when the heat was on in the kitchen, they ran like Throwing hot water on a cat, they scrambled for any hole they could find to dive into. Weakest. I've often wondered where they went. I've often wondered if any of them slipped back and hid behind some tree or bush or house just to get one last glimpse of him hanging there. I've often wondered what they said when somebody asked them, where were you when he died? I often wondered how they excused it. You remember when you were a kid growing up and you watched those Superman cartoons and they'd come out, they'd get a gun, you know, and and they'd shoot at Superman, and he'd stick out his chest, big S on it. He'd stick out his chest, and bullets just fly off of him. They're sitting there shooting at Superman, and bullets flying, hitting him and flying away, falling away. You know what they did? You know what the guy did when he emptied his gun of bullets? What'd he do? He threw the gun at him. In every episode, he'd shoot till all the bullets were gone, then he'd throw his gun at him. You know what Superman did? He ducked. Does that that seem strange? That that here's a guy who's just repelling bullets with his bare chest, and when the guy ran out of bullets, he threw his gun at him and he ducked it. It's a strange thing. And so we come, hear me now, we come into church and we show the big S 
and we smite our breast and we talk about prayer and victory and God. And when the least little thing comes along, we duck out. When the least little thing comes along, we duck out. Doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be this morning that you're blind to, this, to the great moment. This is a great moment. This moment is electric with the presence of God. This moment is the celebration what God has done in Christ. You don't have to be blind to that. You don't have to be earthbound any longer. You don't have to be blind, ignorant of the spiritual. You don't have to betray the Lord. You can be that person who stands by Him and for Him and to Him. You don't have to be that person. You, you don't have to be one who has to have first place in everything. Stop your fussing among each, yourselves and in your family and become that servant of all. You don't have to be one who runs when the pressure's on. The amazing thing about this is if you turn a page or two and you'll find all these men back together with boldness and the reason why is they saw the risen Lord and that's what this sermon's about and that's what this week is about it's about coming back to serve a risen Christ let's pray together our father we pray now for the dynamic of this moment that it would bring glory to you and purpose to us. For I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. There are three invitations. There's an invitation this morning for you to give your life to Christ. The greatest moment of anybody's life is the moment they surrender in faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That moment is just outside the door of your faith. The scripture says, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, the word which we've spoken. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe there's someone who needs to come this morning to claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or to join the fellowship of this church or to get your life back in line with God, square with Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.